0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, we're diving into a topic that's on everyone's mind these days artificial intelligence. We've all seen the recent advancements. You've probably played with Chat GPT or other tools like it. Some of us are excited about its potential. Others are scared. But nearly all of us are asking questions about the implications of this new technology. And that's why we've invited an expert to fill us in. James Cham is an early stage venture capitalist and a partner at Bloomberg Beta, a Silicon Valley-based firm that invests in the new world of work. Conversations about artificial intelligence and machine learning are a big part of his day-to-day life. He joins us today to talk about how he wrestles through the ever-changing landscape of technology with wisdom, discernment and a redemptive vision of the world. Let's get into it.
1: One thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things.
0: And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ
1: and not in having money.
2: I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been
1: a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not all right. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to
2: do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not
1: winners and losers.
2: I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something.
0: Like We're addicted to comfort. and He's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into.
1: Entrepreneurship
3: can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. When we're here with our guest, James Cham in the house, a fellow Californian, but you are broadcasting this in from Washington, D.C., where you're going to talk about the subject matter that we've brought you to talk about. And this is building, William, on some work we've done recently about artificial intelligence. And two nights ago, we did an event for Inklings. Inklings is a group we get together every month, month and a half out here. James Cham has been at it. A bunch of folks talking about Christians in Web3. What does it look like for Christians in blockchain? What does it look like for Christians in artificial intelligence? And obviously, with GPT, there's a lot of talk to it. But William, correct me if I'm wrong, but the precipitating event for today but the origination the genesis for today's podcast comes from a panel you heard James talk at at the praxis event tell us more about that
2: yeah so praxis another great friend of the movement as everyone knows had their redemptive imagination summit that they call it up in Napa California a few weeks ago and you know this year there was a shocking lack of cryptocurrency panels and a shocking increase in ai panels I mean, if I could set people up to stick around for the next 40 minutes, I leaned over. I was actually sitting next to our other fearless leader, Justin Foreman. And I leaned over. I said, we got to get this on the podcast fast. This is like the most at the moment forward thinking on not only where AI is going to go, but what should we be thinking about as believers? What shouldn't we be thinking about? What should we be thinking about with our children? What should we be scared of with our children? How are some of our children may be different and some should lean into learning about this now and some maybe should be held back from that for a season. So I think it spanned just an incredible view of what God would have for this space, how we should thoughtfully think about it and how, of course, we shouldn't be scared of a revolution that's coming and thoughtful Christians need to be a part of it or we're going to lose the battle by abandoning the playing field. So with that, James, welcome. It's good to see
3: you guys. So James, I want to ask you, what is motivating the urgency and excitement around AI? Why is everybody talking about it now? Mm. And we'll talk more about why Christians should care, but why is this all the rage now? Why are there so many panels and everybody's talking about AI, the space you've been in for a long time? What makes everybody focus on it now? Mm.
1: You know, The great AI demos have always been with us since like the 60s. There's these great demonstrations in which it'll do this thing or that thing. And even, you know, sort of as recently as like five years ago or two years ago, I'd show some amazing demo of some amazing product that will do this or that magical thing. And then someone would say to me, hey, can I use this? Can I try this? I'd say, well, ah, give me a few moments. I need to prep the data. I need to do this and that. I need to change this, you know, and then give me a couple of weeks and you'll be able to actually try this out and it might or might not work. And what's different about now is that in the last year and then in the last six months, there have been a series of investment bets that have actually paid off such that now we're at a point where like everyone and anyone is able to use the most advanced large language models in a way that like used to be cloistered inside Google or cloistered inside Facebook, where only the smartest people in the world were able to play with it and fiddle with it. And now, in part because of a series of both business decisions and technical advancements, this is available to anyone. And that suddenly means that these things that were theoretical questions became real opportunities. And that has implications not just for business, but also for the way that we think about faith.
3: So what are some of those large language models that have now made their way out into the public? Just give an overview. I have a sense that a number of our listeners know what they are. Some of them might not. What is that? How is that accessible now for everybody?
1: So right now, it's most accessible either through a set of services from Google or Microsoft or from OpenAI. And let me just take a step back to describe sort of like one version of the history of AI, which is, what is AI? AI is a dream. AI is a dream that the computers will be able to do things that humans will be able to do in terms of thinking. And what's interesting about that dream is that along the way, over the last, since like basically the 60s, we've started to be able to do things with computers that like humans thought would be difficult. And each step along the way, we've said, oh, this is not quite AI. This is not quite AI. You know, the fact they can beat someone in chess, that's impressive, but it's not quite AI. And then we're at this point now where these large language models are flexible enough and open-ended enough that for the first time, a lot of even the best practitioners are saying to themselves, oh my goodness, this might mean that we're close to true artificial intelligence. And this only happens because of a series of slightly crazy technical miracles, And let me just describe a few of them, right? So one of the first ones is this idea that we're able to represent ideas in sort of super high dimensional space that you can sort of like get some idea and through a set of statistical techniques that don't really matter right now, you're able to represent it as math, right? And that idea that you can represent it as math and then do math against it, suddenly meant that you can manipulate them in interesting ways. So that's the first miracle. So that's like one miracle. The other miracle that sort of has been surprising to everyone is then you're able to take like sort of, you know, all of the web, compress it down into these models, and then you're able to like do a whole series of queries and chats against them. And then the surprising thing about that is that that will actually end up creating coherent results. So that's the first thing you saw. But that didn't really work that well the thing that worked really well was when you asked the models to explain their thinking step-by-step and suddenly it meant that like, you know, sort of you would ask it some physics problem and it wouldn't answer correctly. And then you'd say to it, okay, answer this physics problem and describe it step-by-step. And suddenly like for the first time it would start answering things much more precisely. And this was sort of shocking and confusing to a bunch of sort of People in the industry, because all of their historical work around thinking about natural language processing and how people talk, like that was thrown out the window by just saying, we're going to process a bunch of text and compress it down. Are we getting too technical? I feel like I'm taking you down the wrong path. Yeah.
2: Well, I love it. I think we needed to go there. And now, yeah, let's take a step back up. Right. And so I think one of the things that was really intriguing is you talked about how, at no point in human history, for the most part, has a technology this advanced been able to be utilized by so many people so quickly, right? And how that's going to have, I mean, you I mean, you can just go on Twitter or LinkedIn. I mean, there are 10 new AI companies born a day that can build you a PowerPoint, build you a website. I mean, it, people are taking this technology and building on it, you know, like a developer tools, right? Like it's amazing. And so I'm curious as you look out, I mean, I'm sure it'll be in the intro, but you know, let's bring it into this conversation. You're an investor for a living, right? You invest in venture capital. So How do you think about the space from Bloomberg Beta's perspective and where you think, you know, let's do now, you know, soon and later, right? What do you feel like the most impressive uses are now? What do you think is coming soon? And what do you think, hey, people are getting ahead of themselves. That's still a ways out before that type of technology is going to be able to exist. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, so the thing that is now, is that most machine learning used to be built for very purpose-built reasons, right? That in a lot of cases, you just have to do a lot of work to get it trained to answer a question exactly right. And now for the first time, it's extraordinarily flexible. And that's disorienting to most people. And so that flexibility means that you can now ask relatively open-ended questions and sort of discover sort of what the model knows or doesn't know. And then now in terms of like short-term, what's available to it, You know, I think there are a lot of startups that are making a lot of money very quickly because they found a specific niche, right, that they figured out, oh, I can create text for this thing or that thing, and I can sell it for 20 bucks and it costs me two bucks to generate. And sort of like that sort of opportunities right here, right now. There's also a whole set of like opportunities around wrapping these models with agency where they can actually then affect the world right and then that sort of thing which basically now you've got these models going around and sort of like browsing a website or touching this or that like that's clearly the next thing right after having chat gpt the next natural thing everyone wants right is that ability to have these things actually do something and that part It's a little less clear, right? It's a little less clear what it's good at and bad at. And that's sort of the thing that's happening right now in real time, that out in Silicon Valley right now, you've got like 50 different people, 50 different teams trying to figure out exactly when does this model work and when doesn't it work when it tries to click on a website or browse this or solve this problem. But that interaction with first the digital world and then that interaction to the rest of the world, that's clearly the thing that's just out there. And to be honest, a little scary.
2: And this would be, I'm thinking about a practical example that may not be a sexy example. This would be like me going to chat GPT saying, hey, I need to take a flight to Dallas, right? I've got an offsite in Dallas coming up in a few weeks and I need to book an Airbnb, book dinner reservations on Monday and Tuesday, book my flights and send the itinerary to so-and-so. And is that a query that's gonna be possible here in the near future where it's like, oh yeah, that'll just be taken care
1: of. That's the sort of thing that feels like it's right around the corner and right now works very well in demos and almost works well enough that people are going to roll out and so this is the other part of it which is like it is a information diffusion of knowledge story where we live in a world where everything is so connected that you know people are able to play all over the world and thus try these technologies out and see what works and doesn't work and then tweet about it like in the afternoon and that cycle of innovation and trying things is like both really exciting And terrifying, right? Because it does mean that there's much more room for mischief now than there was before. And sort of our old illusions of being able to control the technology sort of are thrown out the window. Tell us more about that.
3: Um, Tell us more to some of the things that you're just like, oh, my goodness, this could happen. And I mean, in some of this stuff, I got to tell you, as a dad or just a human being, I get really worried about what this means for the adult entertainment business and just, you know, what this ends up being in terms of just taking people down just really, really bad places. But what are some of the other things that you look at and say, wow, the emergence of this is going to be, this is the type of mischief that can happen, or maybe just riff on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think here are a couple of interesting angles. So in part because these models are so flexible and because their programs are so consistent, they can be much more polite on a consistent basis Or much more persuasive on a consistent basis than say, I will if I didn't have enough coffee in the morning. And so that creates a whole set of interesting opportunities. And in part because they're cheaper to run than like, let's say, talking to me, you can end up replacing humans in conversation in all sorts of interesting, both good and bad ways. And now what's interesting, though, is that one way to think about it is to think about it from the point of view of a consumer in which the consumer maybe gets fooled into having a relationship with what is essentially just a big bunch of numbers, right? So that's one side. But the flip side, which I think is much more relevant to entrepreneurs and much more relevant to people building stuff is like the actual danger of these models and of AI right now is it gives you a chance to pretend that you're not responsible, that you could build this system that does great mischief and then you will say, oh no, it wasn't me. It was the model that did it, right? And I think that that sort of like avoidance of responsibility is actually gonna be the big, big temptation for entrepreneurs. And that is the place where I think Christians have a lot of wisdom, right? Where Christians will be able to say a lot of smart things about the responsibility we have when we create something and both for good and for evil.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. It reminds me, so my wife and I went back and started watching this show called Person of Interest. I don't know if anybody ever heard of it. Jim Caviezel was the star who of course uh, played Jesus in The Passion as well. And it's 10 years ago. But it goes through all the the whole concept of the show is is this brilliant engineer built an artificial intelligence that, of course, national security wanted to buy, right? Because they could predict national security threats and it would pop out who's relevant and there are threats to national security. And the show takes a turn because turns out there's irrelevant numbers as well. The system also finds people that are going to get mugged on the street. And that's what the show goes off and does. And, but, in the context of that, they talk deeply about the decisions he made while building the system. And for instance, one of the big decisions he made, it's 10 years old. Sorry if I'm ruining it, is it erased its memory every night. And how that had to be true, or else it would learn at a speed that eventually, like he couldn't control it anymore. Mm. Right. But they go so deep into these different, and then there's a competing AI, of course, that comes along that's evil, and, and that's a fun story. I think you talked a little bit about national security last time I heard you talk, and I was curious for you to. Take that direction and say, you know, as an example, you could build something great that can be good, that can be used for very much not good things.
1: I mean, I think, so these models, right, are going to be extremely flexible, extremely persistent, and they will do things that we will consider thinking. They will have ideas that are going to be similar to consciousness. And why does that happen or how does that happen? We're not totally sure, but one way to think about it is that they're able to find structure and analogies that our brains sort of like implicitly do, and it's now doing that explicitly through math. And so in that case, it might be able to do things that look creative, right? And it might also be able to do things that end up becoming very, very, but because they're machines, they're much more persistent than we will be. And so, for example, your ability to hack into some system, you know, like, I don't know, I might know 15 techniques to hack into some system. I might get bored because I kind of want to read Twitter or there's a basketball game going on, I get distracted. But these models will be very persistent and they will go through every single possible security hole and find every single possible vulnerability and take advantage of that in a way that no human will. And those sorts of sort of little angles and opportunities I think are quite scary. And I think there's a good reason why a lot of the government and governments all over the world are concerned about this. But I'd say that the hard part there is like, and my thinking has evolved on this, I used to think that the solution might be some newfangled regulation. I now think that in some ways, the right solution are very, very old principles around what are you responsible for? You know, sort of if you benefit, are you responsible for like the upside and downsides of something? You know, sort of who's liable? And all those questions in some ways are super old and super straightforward. So that's one piece. And I think the other piece that's interesting about this is that I think a lot of regulators and a lot of people pursuing AI, because they're hopeful and optimistic, are utopian in their thinking. And I think it's very, very clear from you know all of history and certainly in the Bible, right? That sort of tools are flawed in part, especially tools that are created in our image because we are flawed, right? Because of original sin. And I think that realizing that these models will never be perfect, that these models will always be tragically flawed in the same way that we are. Like that's gonna be an important truth and something that we'll always have to think about. And that's a wisdom that we as Christians and a perspective that we as Christians can provide that I think is unique and helpful. And so where is that? So where is, So, as you think about a
2: believer, investing in the space, coming to the space and talking to entrepreneurs who may be thinking about building in the space. I mean, I think that is, yes. I mean, these models I assume will always gonna be a factor of us. Right. I mean, uh, since you're in D.C., you know, there was a political one, right, where it's like Chad GPT basically won't say any nice things about Trump, but it'll say nice things about Biden, basically. Like if you asked it, like, tell me like great qualities and it's like, well, you know, there's people that built this thing. Right. There is bias built in. Right. To whoever. And, and, you know, there could be bias built in the other way where somebody wouldn't say anything nice about Biden either. Right. But I'm just curious where and how should a Christian think about You know, do you need to build something new? Does it need to be on its own? Can you influence from inside a large organization that's already working on this? And just what is the posture? Are we trying to make it
1: a biblical worldview or? Yeah, yeah. there are a couple of angles, I think, built into that. One of them is this sense that as these models get bigger, they do seem like they get smarter and more interesting. But the other part about it is that there's a bit of a power law. Right. That to build the next version, something's it's going to be like 10 to 100 X more expensive. And so that math around it does end up meaning that it's critical that Christians are in some of the biggest companies in the world to influence and think through what this actually might mean. So I think that's one part. The second part is that you notice that as you talked about ChatGPT, and I think this is a little bit of a marketing thing, there is a temptation to treat it as if it is the God model. Right. as is, oh, you know, if only we can influence our great God, Chat GPT, then our lives would be better. And I think that's the other temptation. Right. That's the temptation of like, treating it like an idol. And I think like that's one of the sort of there's one temptation, which is to say, let's ignore it and run away from it like a Luddite. And then there's the other temptation, which is to say, you know what, actually, this thing is God. Right. Rather than a subcreation made by humans. And the moment we treat it like God, then we have a whole set of other problems.
2: Okay, so let's go a layer deeper into that. So, you know, I remember we had Frank Chin on a while ago, and I remember he talked about some of the just like, hey, some things humans weren't made to do. It's part of the toil. You know, I think we were talking about autonomous driving at the time. And he said, you know, look, all the truck drivers are upset, but like, think about that job. That's not a human flourishing job. You're away from your family, you're driving all day, it's stressful on your body. Like, this is a good thing for humanity, actually. Now, we need to help those people find new jobs and retrain them. But that job in and of itself, Frank was arguing, is not a human flourishing job. And so I'm curious, from an artificial intelligence standpoint, are there certain tasks? So there's people scared, of course, that and we could talk about the Doomsday Terminator 2 scenario at some point. But is this actually a thing we should embrace because it's going to make us more human? Is there an argument for that, that we get more humanity out of this?
1: Mm. You know, this goes back in some ways to praxis, which is that there are a set of decisions that we can make about the kinds of businesses that we want to support and the kinds of businesses that could flourish. So that's the first part, which is it's a decision made by people around what kind of businesses we're going to allow. That's the first part. But the second part is like, I will admit that like, I have an essentially tragic view of work and of humanity, which is that it's flawed. We're all post fall. We try the best we can. I think that there are a whole set of jobs that are actually, I actually honor truck drivers. I think it's a great job. I think it's really important. I think it will fulfill a bunch of important things for people. And, you know, like, I don't know, I compare this to sort of my ancestors who were either toiling in the field, some rice field, or sometimes maybe like running money from one place to another, right? Doing things that were like, And so I feel like our question of, like, what is a good, fulfilling job is so contextual, right? And is so much based on, like, sort of our current conception. I don't know. My great-grandfather, you know, was away for, like, nine months out of the year in order to, like, go from one place to another, right? And that was still seen as a good job. So that's one piece, right? But just to say that, like, I think jobs are going to be tough and it's super contextual. And then the other part that I'd say is, like, it is also important to be very, very cold hearted as we think about these models right now and the economic moment we sit in, which is to say that like if you thought about like the last big policy decision the United States made around globalization, the promise that we made to like citizens was globalize, things will be cheaper. And by the way, you will benefit from the fact that things are cheaper and we will take care of you. And be honest, both Republicans and Democrats have not done that in part because there's a moment where workers had a chance to influence sort of a whole set of decisions. And in part because maybe you trusted the Democrats a little too much, or maybe you trusted your labor union leaders a little too much. That promise was not fulfilled. And we are actually right now in a very, very similar moment where there's a lot of, everyone smells the benefit and all the great things that these models can do. And at the same time, there's a great bargain to be made between sort of all the folks who are working in sort of a bunch of jobs that might be displaced. And I think like that bargain is an entirely political thing that needs to be cold-hearted rather than utopian or blinded by sort of my various startup dreams.
2: So let's get a practical questions here. If you were in X job, you would be wildly scared of this technology taking over your job because that's something that all the headlines, of course, always come out with, you know, technology is always going to take all the jobs, right? Just different versions of it. I'm curious from your perspective, if you were, so let's talk about kids in college. Henry's got two boys in college and one coming up soon. What should or shouldn't they study, right?
1: Yeah, white collar jobs that require people to be polite actually are at great risk. That, you know, sort of there was a time 10, 20 years ago where everyone said, oh, the truck driver is gonna be in trouble or like the guy who, the farmer's gonna be in trouble. That's not really the risk here. The are really, the real risk is all these sort of these Sort of folks like me playing with spreadsheets and emails and trying to be polite to people and talk to them and persuade them in some consistent way. And so there's a whole set of white collar jobs that are going to be different. So I'm giving a presentation in a few minutes to like some congressional staffers. And I have this one slide of this huge floor of an insurance building. It comes out of like the movie The Apartment from the 60s. And you had desks of people who would like have a little calculator, a little hand calculator, crank some number out, take the slip pass it over to another desk. And what's interesting about that work, which was like entire floors of buildings, is like that's basically a spreadsheet, that those hundreds of people on a floor were replaced by a single spreadsheet. And that's, on the one hand, terrifying, right? And it means great dislocation. But on the other hand, it's also true that we've been okay. That if you look at sort of like life from the 50s onto the 90s, it turned out that like those dislocations end up being okay and being managed. But that's like entirely... I think, a political question and less like a fate of the world question.
0: We interrupt this broadcast to ask you an important question. You like when others help you find good things, right? Well, if you made it this far into the episode, chances are you think something about it was good and you can easily spread it around if you follow three easy steps. Rate, follow, and share the podcast. That's it. Thanks for the support. Now back to the show.
3: So I want to take this in a slightly different direction. I just am fascinated by this and it's less around how we invest in it. It's less maybe around some of the innovations that come from entrepreneurs in the business, which is so much of our audience, but it's more about the one thing that unites most of the listeners of the podcast, And that is our belief that there is a truth, that there is absolute truth. It's not relative. You can point back to God's word as immutable. And, you know, as you get ready to talk to these congressional staffers, I mean, this is a nation under God. I wonder if there's an opportunity for there to be this kind of operating, well, it's an operating system of which all of a brand of all AI sits on, which is every type of answer that comes out of this query that I might have of a chat GPT has some sort of biblical foundation to it. And so that I am like, for instance, you know, we invest in faith-driven entrepreneurs. Patriot entrepreneurs are the common element of this podcast. And there's some sort of this belief that the thing that unites us all is to realize that there are real mistakes made in Second Chronicles where the good kings of Judah didn't seek God out. And there's real problems with sin in this area and pride and what the wisdom that comes from Proverbs and Psalms, etc. Can any of that like get coded in to this operating system in the chat GPT. So the answers you come out are actually informed by two or 3,000 years of truth. Now, somebody might say, well, gosh, that's too myopic. It's just Christian. And when we're talking one nation under God, it wasn't just a Christian God or whatever. But 99% of Americans. Believe in God. It's only 1% that are really atheistic. And the general concept that there is a God and that America is unique and is one nation under God is still believed in by the majority of the people in the marketplace. Is it possible that there could be one type of truth that kind of is like kind of coded in to all these things so that we can then say, well, I actually can't go that far
1: off the rails? Because at the root code of all this comes from scripture. I think that that's partly a commercial question, right? I think it's important not to confuse chat GPT and the work that OpenAI, all the really impressive good work that OpenAI is doing in building their own model with all the models that are potentially available, right? It's possible that we live in a world where OpenAI ends up being the only people who are able to build advanced models, But if that happens, that will only really happen because of regulation. Because the truth is right now, there are enough people chasing them. There are enough people building their own versions of models using the same set of techniques. And so my guess is that, you know, we'll live in a world where there are a number of providers of very big models. And then your ability to either fine tune it or wrap around it questions like, oh, here's your answer. And now, like, how does this reflect various biblical values? And then re-answer this question around how it answers various biblical values. Like, that could be done, right? Sort of the other weird miracle around, like, these large language models is that they're very good at self-reflection. That you can give it, you can say to it, hey, you know, answer this question. And then you can ask it, hey, is this question biblical? Is this answer biblical? And then you could ask it again hey, was this answer really biblical? And it'll actually come up with a better answer, right? And so those sorts of things you can do, and they aren't necessarily bounded into like one specific model. That's interesting. So like there's the web, and I don't know
3: as much about this to really speak to it, but there's the web and then there's the dark web. And I wonder if there's like the chat GPT that's informed by the world's great religions of which there are commonalities. And so that any answer, any query, any type of, Pontification or reflection or theory or opinion that's expressed by the chat GPT undergirded by the world's great religions comes up with something. And then anything that would be sinister, not based on these commonly accepted things would be part of like the dark GPT. And people would kind of know like, hey, this is the origination that this AI is a part of this overall code that has this kind of underbearing. And so it could never, ever convince me to kill somebody or it can never encourage me to lie, bear false witness. It could never encourage me to do any type of activity that would have to do with adultery
1: or whatever things like that. And so let me make one really important distinction, which is... ChatGPT is an application that is built by OpenAI. So it's like one very specific application that's built on top of a very big model that OpenAI spent a bunch of money in order to get to the work, right? But there'll be other people who spend a bunch of money to build models. And also the other slightly crazy thing about like these models is, you know, what are they really? Are they really answering your question? Or are they just trying to imitate what other people have done or what other people have written? And so in some ways, you know, they really are just trying the best they can to like generate text that matches something you tell it to do. And so you, I think folks have probably tried this. One of the crazy things you can do is you can say, hey, pretend that you are a Christian who lives in San Diego, who really likes baseball, and then answer the question in this way. Or you could say, pretend that you are a Christian who really likes socialism And answer the question this way include references to the Bible. And so these models will try the best they can in order to fulfill the sort of setup that you gave it. And so, in some ways, that sort of thing is available right now. And it's more a question of commercial adoption and sort of the economics of it than it is a question of whether it's technically doable. So, is it right
3: to encourage and challenge the listeners to this podcast about how might you innovate on top of? open AI with a biblical screen so that a consumer, you know, parents of three children and say, I'm actually going to go ahead. I'm going to buy into and pay a subscription so that my kids have questions about life's big problems or about history or something like that, that it's done through a biblical worldview that that becomes part of their teacher. And when they ask these questions that I can't answer at home about evolution or any type of chemistry or anything like that, that I can have this screen that everything they ever ask of this thing is informed by a biblical worldview because that's actually programmed in the system. Kind of like what I have safe eyes or any one of a number of different types of pay for services that help screen out negative stuff. This could actually be a service that I do that's a positive screen.
1: I mean, you could do that right now. And like the hard part with it is you could basically sprinkle that in the beginning of any query to ChatGPT, and it'll do a pretty good job. And then whether you want to then make that a separate application or a separate business, that's a good question. But you can literally go to ChatGPT right now and say, pretend that you are a very thoughtful sort of evangelist who takes the Bible seriously and, you know, just went to Africa and is based in Silicon Valley, you know, and then answer this question. And it'll do an okay job. And then what's even crazier is, like, you can provide lots and lots of answers that, you know, that person gave and use that as examples that it could then use to generate, you know, possible future answers.
2: something I'm going to test out. I'm going to see the chat GPT's 2021, but we got enough podcast out there. I'm going to see if I can train somebody to answer questions like Henry or Rusty. I think we should try that. Oh Well,
3: that's absolutely a thought. was that based on what James has said and the interplay that we've had thus far, there are infinitely better questions that I could have asked along the way. That a chat GPT is like, okay, James Cham just said this on the podcast. What should I ask as a follow-up? I'm sure Chat GPT right now could come up with a hundred better questions than the ones that I asked.
1: And then I think so, the opportunity. So on the one hand, like that's going to be magical and it's going to seem so different from anything we've ever seen before. But in other ways, it's not different at all. Remember, that sort of relationship with the Henry bot, in some ways, is very similar to like your relationship to Billy Graham. Or David Letterman, which is to say, it is a relationship not with the actual person, but with an image of the person, right? Mm -hmm. And those sorts of things in sociology would be called parasocial relationships. And they can be very, very helpful. And they do great good until they become idolatrous. Right. And then that sort of temptation is as old as the Bible. Right. That the chance for us to treat something that is a parasocial relationship, our relationship with the king who doesn't really know us and worship him or our ability to sort of like have a relationship with like some mountain and then worship the mountain. Right. That temptation is going to be the thing that we're going to struggle with a lot more in new and interesting ways.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's good, because that's real. You know, we just did, obviously, a, a tribute podcast to Tim Keller, and I feel like that, you know, he's had a big influence on my life, and I've, I've probably shaken his hand twice, right? But the amount of, like, did I answer questions, you know, here's kind of what Tim Keller would say about that, right? even though I don't really have a personal relationship with him. Like, yeah, it's, it's been around for a while. You read enough books by someone, and you watch enough, I mean, I've listened to a 100 sermons from him and read 20 of his books. Like, I can kind of, yeah. like, here's kind of what he would say to that.
1: That's right. And then the interesting thing then as Christians is to have a distinction between those parasocial relationships and sort of the relationship with someone who seems like would be distant and seems like it would be all-powerful and all-knowing, and yet actually has a relationship with us, right? Because our relationship with Tim Keller might be parasocial, but our relationship with Jesus is actually social, right? That actually, like, we actually have a relationship with him. And in understanding that distinction, I think gives us room to think about these questions in a way that ends up being a little bit easier than it is for non-Christians. Because we've got a model like not a machine learning model, but instead we have an example of what it's like to have an actual relationship with someone versus having that sort of parasocial relationship, which is important and again, beneficial, but very right. different than having a relationship with Jesus.
2: James, as we come to the end here, you know, we got a lot of entrepreneurs listening. I'm one of them. I'm curious to hear your answer here. What should we be folding into our business? How should we be taking some of these tools, if at all, right? I assume the answer is yes, to some degree. Like, what should I be doing? Like, hey, I'm going to pitch you in 12 months, Right. Like, what if, if I haven't done X, are you going to be like, wow, like, man, you got to like get with the times, like you got to have, and is that statement even true? Does everyone need to be using some of these tools in their business? Is that advantageous to build a better growing business?
1: You know, there was some point in maybe 1997 when people started building web applications and they didn't have names for it yet, right? They didn't really know how to describe it. Everyone sort of thought Yahoo was the dominant thing. And maybe there's like, we thought we'd all buy Oracle applications that were served through some web server. And we're sort of at that point. We're sort of at the point where it's clear something's working and exactly how it's going to work or exactly what's going to be the dominant business model. All those questions are unclear. And so if I'm you, I'm trying to figure that out right now, that there's a little bit of a race right now to figure out what are these models really, really good at? and what's going to be the thing that ends up turns out to be really really valuable. So, if we use our web example from like the late 90s early 2000s, you know, you talk to some senior executive Yahoo, who is the dominant company at that point, and if you told them the most important asset you have is shared address books, they'd be like that's dumb. Shared address books is like a feature. And if you told them that like that part that would search through the web turned out to be the most valuable part, they'd be like that's dumb. That's just a feature of our portal. But of course, it turned out that Google, which indexed the web and then became like the stopping point for everyone else turned out to be incredibly valuable. And that shared contact list is basically social, right? And it turned out that like that turned out to be the really, really valuable thing. And so we're still at a point where we don't really know what's going to be the durably valuable thing. And so we're all playing around right now. And so if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm at least devoting, you know, sort of a few hours a day, just trying to figure out the outlines of what's possible right now.
3: That's good. Wow. That's That's awesome. So that is a great takeaway. Spending some concerted time thinking through this, reading up on it, because it does feel like this is a marketplace changing type of event. And it's a big deal. There's going to be opportunities for great innovation, for inclusion Mm -hmm. in your business. And we need to be able to have answers about how this impacts our life. And so many of us are parents and we need to be thinking through this. And as we do that, I think that there's going to be some great innovations. And Lord willing, we'll figure yeah. out what this means for translating the Bible and contextualizing the Bible into different languages mm-hmm. and heart languages in an infinite number of great applications because it feels like this is a technology like so many others that could be used for good or for bad. And so Christ followers need to not bury their heads in the sand and just like, wow, this, is, uh, this scares me. So we're going to go away and we're just going to be real conservative and we're going to just, you know, go back and live on farms and not use phones, but we actually need to lean into this and get yeah. involved and get engaged and be serious because everybody else is.
1: Yeah, I think there are a few angles on that. So one is, you know, the biggest bargain in the world right now is 20 bucks a month to subscribe to Chat GPT Plus. Like I make no money, I have no financial interest in open AI, but I would do that. And you know how you said this is the time to read about it? This is probably the time to read about it. This is part time, time to read it and try it because the weird thing about now is that. You literally can go on right now and you could get the capabilities that used to only be available to the smartest, smallest set of people inside Google, right? And you suddenly now can play with these things and figure out faster than they can what's possible. So that's one piece. I think the question that you asked about kids is just so, so important. And in some ways, we are really, really lucky because we've already experienced what the phone transition looks like, right? And there's a way in which we as parents can have a proper amount of skepticism about what works and doesn't work, right? That like, if you were to go to 2010 and sort of think about like the phone and how your kids should think about the phone, right? You might've thought, well, this is so different from the web. It's totally different. But now we actually have specific examples in our head about what happens when these things become super, super accessible and what it means for folks to go astray and what it means for someone to be totally consumed by something, right? And all those examples we can think about because they happen to us. Right, And then we could be wiser about how we end up thinking about this for our kids.
2: Mm. that's so good. uh, you've been here before, so you know where we're going to close. We would love to hear where God's speaking to you today, uh whether that's about AI or not. uh there's a lot of other fun things He talks to us about. Where in his word are you today, and you know what's he telling you from his scripture
1: and what's coming alive to you in a new way? You know the thing that has stuck with me for the last few years is this idea of old men dreaming dreams of revival. And I think that that continues to animate me and excite me that I think that we're at a time of great uncertainty, both from a technology point of view, but also from like, be honest, like our position in the world as Americans. And I think it's at those times of uncertainty where there's the best chance of revival because Suddenly, we can't rely on all the normal answers, right? The things that have worked for us since at least, like, I don't know, the mid-80s, they're not working anymore, right? And so this means that there's a whole set of folks who are open to, like, God working in surprising ways. And I find that really encouraging. And so that's the thing that I pray for and sort of try to dream these dreams and hope that young men and women do amazing things. And and that's probably what excites me the most right now. Amen. Amen indeed. Fascinating. Okay.
2: Wait, I got Brilliant. something we're going to finish with. I got something we're going to finish with. So I just went to Chat GPT while you're we here and I told him to pretend that he's Henry Kasner, the host of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast, co founder of bandwidth.com and elder of the PCA church. And I'd like to ask you some business questions. What are the three most important things to do as you build your business according to Henry Kasner AI? One, faith integration. Kastner is a strong advocate for faith-driven entrepreneurship. He believes one's faith should not be separated from their work, but rather integrated into every aspect of it. People and culture, employees are the backbone of any business, and Kastner emphasizes the importance of treating employees well, fostering a positive company culture, and investing in term and growth. Happy, motivated employees are more likely to deliver their best work. Sustainable and ethical business practices is number three. Kastner encourages entrepreneurs to focus on long-term sustainable growth over short-term gains and to make business decisions that are ethical and in line with their faith and their values. Wow. What, we think? wow. what do we think? You're tearing well, up. You're tearing
3: so up. Well, I've got this stupid ointment I put around my eyes. And fortunately, this isn't a video podcast. But but yes, I am tearing up. But it doesn't have to do with that. It's fascinating and scary. Because yeah. what it doesn't do is it doesn't point to, it talks about generally about faith as if that's just kind of like a character attribute without a relationship with a living God who, as sinful as I am, died for me and in our response and joy and gratitude of the gift of life now and eternal, that I can then just return to the altar with all that I am is the aroma of Christ to be a blessing of others and balancing the joy and the gratitude with the faithfulness and the obedience in something that's multidimensional and just spiritual in the aroma of Christ. So I would answer as a human being, I would answer those questions differently now, all of those things can glean different topics on the web, and yet it feels like it's looked at it through an academic exercise versus a spiritual life
1: heart transformation one. Yeah, so, so I would not anchor myself too much on the idea that that won't change. And I did a bad job of explaining this earlier. But remember, these models are just based on what people have said, right? And these models are just trying to best they can to guess what would be the next word based on the first set of words that you gave it to. And then what's interesting is, like as we progress and provide it with more words and more data or certain types of words and certain kinds of data, then the models will say something different. And so I bet you that if it recorded everything that Henry said on a daily basis, and you sort of ask that question again, it would come up with a different answer. And so the super uncomfortable, weird, like I think what's gonna be uncomfortable for us is how good these things are at like feeling human, right? And that's gonna be both a great salve for us. It'll like make life a lot better and it'll also be a great temptation.
3: Wow. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. It is fascinating. James, thank you, brother. Thank you for your friendship, for your partnership, and thank you for spending time. And may the Lord bless you as you get ready to make this presentation in Washington. And Amen. excited to see how God will go through you and and may He lead all of His people to being able to be participants and the new technology and lean into it and just may he protect us all. In Jesus' yeah. name, amen. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is In the House by David Crowder.